end is the 
The four covenants that God made with Israel have specifics that we covered last week, some of which have been completed and some of which have not been completed. For example, the Abrahamic covenant promises specific borders for the land of Israel which have yet to be fulfilled. Remember the map I showed last week. Now, some of this stuff I know was in the sermon last week. If you didn't hear last week's sermon, it's online. You can go back and review it. And you can see the map even. Um, God's, God's covenant with David promises an eternal ruler on the kingdom throne, which we also know hasn't happened yet. And if these things are not fulfilled, what would that say about the faithfulness of God? The next thing is that God has prophesied certain events will happen in the future to the people and the land of Israel. Now, if those events do not happen as he said they would, then we have to ask ourselves, is God not all-powerful? Apparently, he can't make them happen. Or is he doesn't, does he not know everything? He's maybe not omniscient, since he didn't know that it really wouldn't happen. He was just, like, speculating, like, giving a good guess. Well, I should hope so. Prophecies like Ezekiel 38 and 39, or most of the last third of the book of Isaiah, or most of Zechariah, require that there be a physical Israel populated by a Jewish people. Jesus' own words in Matthew 24 and 25 require that there be a land of Israel populated by Jewish people. God's ultimate faithfulness rises or falls with his promises and his covenants. So to sum all that up, there are covenants, there are promises made in the Old Testament. They have yet to be fully realized by Israel. Jesus came. He was rejected when presented to Israel as their king and Messiah at the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He was executed on the cross. And his death on the cross, kind of a plot twist you might not have been sure about, was a necessary part of fulfilling these covenants as his death made a way for sin to be conquered and to be forgiven for eternity. Then his resurrection conquers death and the power of the devil and opens the way for new life to everyone who believes, not just the original Jewish believers, but for the Gentiles, that's us, also. Now we know over time, in fact over a very short period of time, the church became almost entirely Gentile. And Israel, after 70 AD, was mostly forgotten about as a spiritual entity or part of the plan of God in the future. And it's kind of a sad testimony that over the centuries, various groups within or parts of the church were actually directly involved in or directly responsible for persecution of the Jewish people. And part of this unfortunate anti-Semitism comes from theologies that arose over the centuries involved what we call supersessionism. Isn't that a nice word? Should put it on the screen. I, I had to I had to teach Microsoft Word how to spell this word. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Gates didn't know how to spell this word. I was very disappointed. Supersessionism, say that three times fast, is simply the idea that the church supersedes Israel, replacing Israel in the plan of God. In other words, it's not like Israel was the original plan. That didn't work out so well. So God created the church. Sometimes supersessionism is also called replacement theology. Right? Church replaces Israel. Now the problem, I hope, that you are, are thinking of, especially if you were here for last Sunday's sermon, is that if replacement theology is true, then what about all those prophecies and those covenants that we talked about last 
that still needs some fulfillment. What about all those? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. Even if you aren't asking, I'm going to tell you anyway. I love going into long, detailed explanations, because obviously everybody eventually wants to get to lunch again. <laughs> Except for Stacy. If I talk about this for the next three hours, he'd be sitting there. He'd be holding his daughter and be like, uh, the basic tenet of supersessionism is that those things not already fulfilled in the Old Testament have been or will be fulfilled in the church, but not literally, but spiritually. Now, nobody can directly define what that really means that they'll be fulfilled spiritually. But they get transferred to the church. So, for example, there's not going to be a literal kingdom with Jesus on David's throne, just a spiritual one. Any promises or prophecies made to Israel now, they're transferred to the church. And God will somehow fulfill those in some appropriate but not necessarily literal way. Now that is a really interesting concept if you go and read Ezekiel 38 and 39. I don't know how you're going to spiritually fulfill that to the church when it talks about massive armies lining up around the land of Israel and trying to kill the Jewish people. Let's just say, it's one reason I haven't bought a ticket to Israel right now. But, you know. Now, it seems to me the obvious problem with this idea is simply that the already fulfilled prophecies and parts of the covenant that have been fulfilled were fulfilled literally. If you remember back, now I realize this is challenging your brain a little bit, but I've talked about this many times, so for those of you who've been here a long time, if you remember my rules for interpreting prophecy, does anybody remember what rule number two is? You're exempted, Pat, because I know you haven't come here long. That's rule number one. Good, though. Very good. <laughs> Two is prophecies are fulfilled literally as written. For example, a whole bunch of prophecies about the first coming of Jesus, right? He'd be born in Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? Oh, oh yeah, he was born in Bethlehem. Did it require God moving the emperor of the Roman Empire to force there to be a census to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem for the baby to be born? Oh, well, yeah, but guess where Jesus was born? Right where Micah 5 2 says he's going to be born. Right? When it says in Isaiah, he'd be pierced. For our, was he pierced? He was on the cross. Wasn't he? he was pierced. I go on and on. Right? If the first prophecies of his coming were literally fulfilled as written, why would anyone think the prophecies surrounding his second coming? and the future that he has planned be fulfilled in any other way than literally. For example, if you read Matthew 24 and 25, or the last third of the book of Isaiah, how are those things going to be fulfilled spiritually when it talks about Jesus coming back and people seeing him and a literal kingdom being set up, set up and, and that sort of thing? 19th century pastor and scholar J.C. Ryle puts it this way. It's your grandson, James it is high time for Christians to interpret unfulfilled prophecy by the light of prophecies already fulfilled. I could just stop right there 
and preach a whole sermon right on that. Right there. The curses of the Jews were brought to pass literally, so also will be the blessings. The scattering was literal, so also will be the gathering. The pulling down of Zion was literal, so also will be the building up. The rejection of Israel was literal, so also will be the restoration. For us to understand what God has actually planned and what the present state of his people, the Jews, is and their future, we actually need to look to a passage in the New Testament where Paul explains how Israel, the Gentile church, and the plan of God all fit together. How the plan of God fits together for the church of Israel. And that passage is Romans chapter 11. Romans 11 is the conclusion of a three-chapter discourse that begins in chapter 9. Chapter 9, Paul's explaining how God chose Israel and how they stumbled and disobeyed and how Christ comes as a fulfillment to the promise of salvation made in the Old Testament. That's chapters 9 and 10. And by chapter 11, he explains how even though God chose or elected Israel as his people and the people through whom Jesus would come, that they are not presently living up to their calling. And the main points of chapter 11 are going to deal with God's present plan and future plan for Israel and how we, the Gentiles, are connected to that. We're going to start in verse 1 and 2. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So the first thing Paul wants us to understand is that God has not rejected Israel. Even as they, for a time, obviously have rejected his Messiah, Jesus. Paul cites himself as an example, right? He was a Jew. In fact, he was persecuting the church. Yet, there he is, writing to the Romans as an apostle, a Jew saved through the work of Jesus. In fact, we know most of the early church in the first few decades of Christianity was ethnically Jewish, not Gentile. You got a few Gentiles in there, right? Cornelius and his family and that sort of thing, but mostly Jews. Now, to me, the obvious statement of Paul here is kind of the first nail in the coffin of replacement theology, because Paul clearly states what? God has not rejected Israel. Israel might reject him for a time, but God has not rejected Israel. Meaning he must still have some sort of plan for them if he's not replacing them. So otherwise, doesn't it seem like Paul would have said God is done with Israel? Not as he rejected them by no means. So we're going to drop down to verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble as referring to Israel in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. 
But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So Paul makes several points here. There's three of them that are critical that I want to bring up. About what God is doing with and through Israel in this part of this chapter. First thing. God has used their rejection and disobedience to reconcile the world to himself through Jesus. Because Jesus is not just Savior of the Jews or Messiah of the Jews, he is Savior of the world. He's Savior of all who would believe in his person and work and follow him. Now in the present time, this also includes some Jews, like Paul, who would believe. But they do not stop being part of Israel when they believe. Second thing, so, so the fact that Israel rejected is a good thing for us. Second thing, he likens the Jews to an olive tree. And the Gentiles to like branches that are grafted into the tree. You know, you know about grafting, right? You take, you know, you graft fruit trees, that sort of thing. Your orange tree is growing peaches or something. I'm not a very. Any plant that comes into my house, it cries because it knows death is in it. I'm like the Grim Reaper of house plants. Okay? My poor wife, she gets a plant and she gets flowers, and she enjoys it as long as she can. She knows the doom is upon it. <laughs> because I will forget to water it, or I will forget that it exists even. Soon, even though it's sitting in the middle of the dining room table. I'm pretty soon. Okay. But anyway, the Gentiles are the branches grafted into that tree, while Israel is the tree itself. In other words, Israel is the source of our salvation through Jesus, not the other way around. Now, it's easy to forget about Israel and our Jewish connections and our Jewish roots of our faith because, for the most part, the majority of Jews, you know, 99.8763% of Jews in the world do not believe in Israel. A lot of them don't even really believe in God currently. But that does not change the fact of what Paul says here. And some branches that were broken off to make room for us, but the tree is still ultimately rooted in Israel and her Old Testament covenants and her promises. Now further, I think this metaphor is also meant to show that the original tree, if we're just grafted in, that means the original tree still exists and has a future, even if for a time it's not the focus of the gardener. If right now the gardener is focusing on grafting in the branches of the Gentiles, it does not mean he's forgot the tree exists, or that he's like, well, we got the branches now, let's just Forget the trunk and the roots. We got some sweet branches. Don't work like that. And I think this is another nail in the coffin of replacement theology because the metaphor tells us that the original tree is still intact. 
attack and to back the roots of everything, and that's Israel. We, the Gentile church, are connected to it through Christ, but we do not in any way replace the roots or the trunk of the tree. We are added into it. Now the third thing he tells us is no one should be arrogant toward the Jews as they came first, as they are the root. We shouldn't think we're somehow better than the original tree. If we fail to stay connected to the tree through faith, we really have no place in the people of God, just as those branches that were broken off make room for us. God still loves his people Israel, and he still has plans for the tree. Now Paul goes on to explain Israel's status in the present time. Look at verses 25 through 29. Now lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. It's partial, right? Because there are some Jews that believe. Paul was one. Right? Delvin was telling me about some guy that was on David Jeremiah's show this morning that was a Jew who believed, you know, Messianic Jew. Anyway, okay, so that's why it's a partial hardening. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel be, will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So currently, the majority of Israel is in a state of unbelief. A partial hardening has occurred there until this time when the Gentiles have fully come in, or fully been grafted into the tree, so to speak. So the big plot twist here, right, of the plan is that God allows Israel to reject their Messiah for a time precisely so that we can be saved and become part of the people of God, fulfilling part of that original promise to Abraham, right, that all the nations would be blessed through him. All the nations are blessed through Jesus, who is the way we are grafted into the tree and become part of the people of God. Now, Paul also comments a little bit here on the future of Israel. Because Paul tells us that this is not going to be forever. It's not going to be forever. Right? There's going to come a time when the fullness of the Gentiles will come in, and God's going to pick up his plan for Israel, right? He says, all Israel will be saved. He says the deliverer will come and will banish ungodliness. Now we know that hasn't happened yet. And then he makes what I think is that those are from Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27, by the way, the statements. Then he makes the most important statement, I think, in the chapter. Verse 29. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. where I spent half my week just meditating on this verse. I was annoying Stacy texting me about this verse. <laughs> the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, if God has promised something, if he's given his word that it will happen, then it will happen at exactly the right time and the right place when he intends it to happen. Now that applies in this context, obviously, Israel, it applies to you. If God's made you promises, God's called you to something, God's gifted you, it is irrevocable. He's going to do it. 
person, to his nature, to his word, and to his people, both Gentile and Jew. Because the gifts of the calling of God are irrevocable. And if God called the people of Israel and he promised them certain things, he will someday fulfill those things yet to be fulfilled, just as he will fulfill to all of us the things he has promised to us, like new heavens and new earth, and my sweet Arnold Schwarzenegger in the Conan era body. <laughs>
mind are not to be taken in their plain, literal sense? Will you dare to tell him that the words Zion, Jerusalem, Jacob, Judah, Ephraim, Israel do not mean what they seem to mean, but really mean the church of Christ? Will you dare to tell him that the glorious kingdom and future blessedness of Zion, so often dwelt upon in prophecy, mean nothing more than the gradual Christianizing of the world by missionaries and gospel preaching? Cultivate the habit of reading prophecy with a single eye to the literal meaning of its proper name. Cast aside, remember he's writing in the 19th century, so the tradition, this is really the, the hardcore settling in of replacement theology. So when he says the old traditional idea, okay, he's, he's talking, you know, that was the, the predominant thinking at that time. Cast aside the old traditional idea that Jacob and Israel and Judah and Jerusalem and Zion must always be in the Gentile church, and that predictions about the second advent are to be taken spiritually and first advent predictions literally. Be just and honest and fair. If you expect the Jews to take the 53rd of Isaiah literally, of course the chapter that talks about Jesus' suffering, be sure you take the 54th and 60th and 62nd literally also. Let's pray. Father God, I realize that we live in a time where for a lot of people, certainly in the West, the, the taking literally of your word is sort of is sort of looked on the nose as a bad thing. Probably think some of us are silly for taking the word as your word. But Lord, we have nothing else to stand on other than the salvation we have through Jesus Christ and your word that tells us about it. Father, in your word, you have made covenants and promises for the people of Israel. You have grafted us into their tree, but it's, Father, still root and trunk of the people of Israel, and you will finish your plan for them, just as you promised. Just as those things that have already happened, happen literally, we look forward to your fulfillment of other things. We pray for the peace of your people, for the peace of Jerusalem, and that even in this time, many would have their eyes open and their heart made removed, and they would come to know Jesus as Messiah and Savior. Until that time, when you return, we are resurrected, and as your word says, all Israel will be saved. We give you glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.